Welcome to the T4D Discussion Series. I'm your host, Michael Badger, and this week we have with us yet again, Dr. Hunter Baker. If you remember from our previous interview, Dr. Baker serves as Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, is a university fellow, and is an Associate Professor of Political Science at Union University. He is also the author of three books, including The End of Secularism, Political Thought, A Student's Guide, and The System Has a Soul. But this week, Dr. Baker actually sits down and speaks with us about the phenomenon that is Dr. Jordan Peterson. Though he himself is not a Christian, Dr. Jordan Peterson has caught the attention of many young Christians due to his interpretations of the Bible, along with his critical view of postmodernism. Dr. Baker sits down with us and speaks about the things that we can learn from Dr. Jordan Peterson and things that we may need to be a little weary about. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion. Dr. Hunter Baker, thank you so much again for for joining us on this little podcast. I am so glad to be here. Awesome. Well, you said that like just a second ago that you wanted to start off with a few nerdy things. That's right. In the spirit of the Truth for Doubt podcast. Now, this is vintage nerdy, okay? I mean, so uh, um, there's a famous actor, Charlton Heston. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, do you know who that is? Are you? Are you? I I know who he is. If you okay. ask me what he was in, I oh. would I would shame, oh. I would shame my oh father. Oh my gosh! Okay. Oh, no. So Charlton Heston, uh, he's probably most famous for um, doing the Ten Commandments. You oh, know, okay. So playing yeah. Moses in the Ten Commandments. However, uh, late sixties, early seventies. There is, uh, it's not, it's not officially a trilogy, but I consider it a trilogy of sci-fi films that he did. Uh, and they are Planet of the Apes. Nice. All right. Soylent Green and The Omega Man. Ah, okay. I've heard which, of The Omega Man. Which, uh, if you are younger and you have ever seen Will Smith in I Am Legend, yep. then you have a sense of The Omega Man. Right. Right. Um, but I, to me, Jordan Peterson, who I think we're talking about today, yeah. Jordan Peterson is kind of a Charlton Heston-like figure mm-hmm. uh, for this generation. And what I mean by that is, is that in this trilogy, right, <clears throat> and, and specifically in The Omega Man, Heston plays, to me, he's like the last Western man, right? Uh-huh. He is... He's a physician, but he's a well-educated Renaissance man. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been a plague that has basically, uh, at, you know, in the Will Smith film, the the creatures are sort of monstrous, right? Yeah. Um, in the Heston film, they are more like long hair albino hippies, okay. and uh, you know, and they and they right. rage, they rage against the man of the wheel, uh-huh. right? You know, they rage against progress and. So they have kind of taken over the nighttime world, and Heston is sort of the last Western man, and he's holed up in a department store playing his chess, trying to figure out ways to survive, right? And yeah. I, I think it's just very much that picture of, uh, you know, sort of civilization mm-hmm. being assailed by these sort of progressive radical forces, yeah. right? And trying to hold out, trying to hold out, you know, for a right. new day. And uh, and I think of Peterson a little bit like that, yeah. right? You know, sort of playing that role, kind of defending 
uh, Western civilization and the point that it has reached and kind of arguing, don't dismantle this edifice, mm-hmm. that would be a mistake. Right. 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 That's the nerdiest segue possible into this conversation, and I love it. it that was fantastic. And, and let me strongly recommend those movies, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, Soylent Green, all people can ever can think about is the, Soylent Green is made of people, we're eating people, right? But it's a, but it, there's so much to that film. It's uh-huh. a, one of the classic kind of overpopulation dystopia oh, okay. films. Got it. Uh, and, of course, Planet of the Apes. You know, uh, one of the most amazing time travel twist films of mm-hmm. all time, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, not not really resembling the later Mark Wahlberg right. uh, type, you know, or James sure. Franco right, work, right. Uh, and of course the Omega Man, which I've just described. Yeah, yeah, with some pretty powerful Christian imagery at the end, by the way. In Omega Man. In the Omega Man. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, I definitely want to see that. Yeah. Um. So I, I've never heard of the Soylent, Soylent Green. Is that right? Oh, is that oh my it? gosh. I, I know. I'm sorry. I'm showing my age. but it, what Soylent it, Green, yeah. What it reminds so. me of is, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's called Snowpiercer. Sure, I saw it, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. I, anything dystopia, I watch. Oh, okay, right? got it. Yeah, well, that has like the same idea of like absolutely. these people kind of go missing on this train, and then you find out later that there's this big twist of why they've gone missing. And, awesome. Oh, it's yeah, so good. So yeah. is, it, is it along those lines? Well, uh, Soylent Green basically, uh, so... It, you know, it now as a Christian, I don't tend to buy into the overpopulation narrative. Right. 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 Uh, but that having been said, it portrays a world where uh, because of abuse of the environment, because of, you know, a failure to deal with some of the challenges uh, of ecology, mm-hmm. mankind finds itself in a pretty rough state. And they they seem to have engineered their way out of it. Right. Uh but it turns out maybe they haven't, oh, right? Man. Oh, man. <laughs> sounds good. Yeah. Man, I'm going to yeah. have to have like a, a classic movie marathon pretty exactly. soon. Exactly. So that yeah. sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, you did mention uh, the the Charleston Heston of our age, um, Dr. Jordan Peterson. Yes. So for those of you who are unaware or for those of people listening who are unaware, can you just mm-hmm. kind of give a breakdown of who he is and how he – Sure. Why we're talking about him in the first place? Yeah. Um, Jordan Peterson is – an unlikely YouTube star, mm-hmm. right? Uh, when I was approached to contribute to a book about Jordan Peterson, my immediate thought was, I'm going to be watching a lot of YouTube videos, <laughs> you know, uh, because he has he has a lot of them, uh, you know, uh, has racked up, you know, millions of views uh, of his various talks and lectures and interview appearances and things like that. Uh, sometimes considered a member of of what one New York Times writer called the intellectual dark web, mm, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, sort of this group of people who podcasters like Joe Rogan would mm-hmm. interview because he likes sort of an independently minded person. Um, Peterson sort of shot to fame. He's a Canadian academic. Um, highly pedigreed psychologist. Uh, you know. Um, uh, you know, has his degrees from outstanding institutions, um, uh, some of the finest in the U.S. and or Canada. And uh, he became famous um, because uh, Canada passed a law uh, or some kind of ordinance, uh, C-16, he mm-hmm. refers to it, <clears throat> that uh, purported to require you to call a person by their preferred pronouns. Mm-hmm. 
And Peterson, who is, uh, who is not a Christian, um, I think he's highly sympathetic to Christian narratives and, and is, uh, and, and as I think we'll see in this interview, it really affects his, the Bible really affects his reading of things. Yeah, right. Um, but he basically said, I will not obey this law, right? Uh, and, um, you know, his willingness, uh, maybe this is the best defensive tenure I've ever seen, his, <laughs> right, yeah. his willingness to sort of brook the will of the powers that be uh-huh. and to insist, I will not let the state dictate the borders of reality to me, right? I mean, mm-hmm. biological reality. I will not let the state tell me what a man or a woman is, mm-hmm. right? You know, this is not actually determined by politics. Uh, that that sort of brought him to, to fame, and he has... Uh, in the process, he has become um, a voice that I think a lot of young men look mm-hmm. to, particularly uh, as uh, sort of a, a leader, right. someone who gives them uh, a kind of a courage of their convictions or, or of their view of what reality is mm-hmm. uh, and a willingness to sort of uh, stand up against the zeitgeist in right. many cases. But even more importantly... Um, he is now becoming one of these people who gives advice on how to live your life, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, you know, he has his uh, his recent best-selling book. I'm suddenly blanking. Twelve rules. Twelve rules for life. I think is what right. it's called. Right. Yeah. And um, so, and I, you know, have read that book. It's uh, it is very insightful. It it would mm-hmm. it would improve your ability to succeed and to live life in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's who he is. Gotcha. And so, what what specifically about his message do you think is connecting to the male population, because I think that, or the young, specifically the young male population, because he didn't originally set out to really do that. He wasn't necessarily yeah. aiming for that demographic, but they kind of, because of what he was saying, kind of was drawn to him. So is there something specific you think there was in that message? That it's it's a them? good question. Um, uh, I think that part of it is, is that if you are, so I have a friend, um, well, actually my no, I don't want to say who it is. <laughs> for his benefit. Right, yeah. Someone close to me who works uh-huh. for a major corporation, okay. right? And, um, you know, they were announcing uh, a round of promotions, and they happily stated that uh, something like 75% of the people promoted were, quote-unquote, diverse. Okay, right. Uh, and, you know, his interpretation of that is, so not me, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? right, exactly. And, uh, and so... So part of what um, Peterson upholds, and I think we probably reach this as we as we talk, is mm-hmm. uh, he's a strong proponent of meritocracy, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the idea of competence as as an organizing principle in life, mm-hmm. and uh, so resisting um, resisting the attempt to racialize our political discourse, to to sexualize our political discourse. Uh, and I think that appeals to a lot of young men, yeah, particularly. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that uh, that your chapter on Jordan Peterson in, in the upcoming book is about is uh, specifically about postmodern or uh, uh, sorry neo Marxism, and I assume that maybe it's relationship to postmodernism. Can you explain that maybe a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So um, Peterson, uh, he's a little bit older than me. I'm 49. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he really pays a lot of attention to something that has kind of obsessed me, and I may have talked about it in our last conversation, which is the Cold War, right? Yeah. Um, and um, let's just say the the Soviet experiment, 
uh, in the in the 20th century, mm-hmm. right? And so he is. Uh, we tend to focus on Hitler as the great villain of the 20th century. And uh, one of the things that Peterson pushes is, is look, uh, Stalin is right up there, mm-hmm. right? You know, uh, Chairman Mao in China is right up there. And just because they have uh, kind of a social justice type end does not excuse the millions who died uh, because of, A, their coercion, and B, their bad policies, mm-hmm. right? So he's very focused on that question. And he believes... <clears throat> that a lot of what we see in our identity politics is basically an attempt to move from an exhausted and failed economic Marxism into a Marxism that is more characterized by race and sex mm-hmm. uh, and ideas of oppression based on sex and color uh, and things like that. Right. 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 So that's, that's kind of basically he views postmodernism and critical theory uh, as basically an attempt to bring Marxism back in a different suit of clothes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you explain just what Marxism was and what it was trying to achieve and then how or why, I guess, that looks like our modern identity politics? Yeah, sure. Well, so Marxism um, basically boils all of life down to economic materialism, Mm -hmm. right? So the idea that... um, that basically people who own property are using it not for any good end, Mm -hmm. uh, but rather to oppress people who don't have it and people who need access to it in order to live, right? And so basically Marxists uh, see an oppressor class and everyone else, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Now, a lot of things that they they really didn't understand, because Marxism arises uh, during the Industrial Revolution, and, uh, you know, at that time, you don't immediately see ordinary people really benefiting from capitalism. Mm-hmm. But then it happens, right? <laughs> right? You know, yeah, right. it happens big time. And, then, and that's why, you know, probably your family and my family are both out of the farm and mm-hmm. uh, off the factory and, you know, have benefited and yeah. have cell phones and air conditioning and, you know, things like that, antibiotics, right? Uh, because of the widespread benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Um, the initial idea was was that if we if we remove private property, put everything in the hands of the state, mm-hmm. uh, if we remove the idea of economic competition, uh, then we will eventually see something like a utopia. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know maybe we have a world where the state owns everything, people can work about three hours a day and um, spend the rest of their time doing uh, critique of poetry and, you know, (laughs) whatever. The uh, the, the famed lesbian dance theory. Uh, Exactly. Very much. That's an actual thing for people who are listening. That's That's fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But that's the idea. Right. Right. So that's Marxism. And so uh, so one of the things that I thought was fascinating as I began to dive into this, and, and this to me is really the most profound thing that Peterson says, and this is where we get into the Bible, Okay. Now, this is a little bit heterodox, so you have to prepare yourself for that, okay? Right. Again, not a Christian. Yeah. Okay? I am, he's not, okay? <laughs> right. All right. <clears throat> but so Peterson looks at the narrative in Genesis, and he says that human beings don't become human in the way we understand humans until after the fall, mm. right? Because, and, and, and that's not crazy, okay, but... But 
after the fall is when human beings become vulnerable. Oh, right. Before the fall, they don't really need protection. They don't, they don't need clothing. They don't need shelter. You know, none of that, right? They don't have needs uh, other than maybe needing God, you know, or, or whatever. But they're, but they're not vulnerable creatures. And so really it's after the fall that human beings become vulnerable creatures. And, uh, and he spends a lot of time paying attention particularly to Cain and Abel because Cain and Abel, he believes, are part of the generation of the first true humans, okay. right? Because yeah. they're the first humans who are born into mm-hmm. human suffering, right? 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 Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, and so it exists, suffering exists, and a big part of what it means to be human is to live in such a way as to meet the challenge of suffering, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, so a good human being is someone who figures out how to address the suffering in their own lives and better yet addresses the suffering in other people's lives as well, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that uh, a good man, a good father, right, you know, uh, is able to mediate the effects of suffering through his labor, mm-hmm. right? And likewise, uh, the wife, the children, you know, other people, um, I think about my grandmother, who's now 103, and I have sometimes asked her, you know, were you, uh, were you happier as a child, you know, or now when you have all the modern conveniences? And she says, I think I was happier as a child. And I was like, why? And she said, um, because I always knew what to do. Mm. I, knew, I knew that my family needed me. I knew what I needed to do to help my family, and that was satisfying to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's part of our trouble as modern human beings is sometimes we don't know what to do with ourselves, sure. right? Right. Um, but so, so he sees suffering. This is the important part. He sees suffering as <clears throat> part of being human. Mm-hmm. It simply is a reality of being a fallen human being, whether he buys into the fallen nature of human beings or not. Right. He believes suffering is uh, simply essential Human beings will suffer, end of the story, full stop, mm-hmm. right? Now, he, so that is to him sort of the, the biblical view of suffering, and he thinks it is correct, mm-hmm. okay? He contrasts with that what he calls the Marxist view of suffering. And he believes that the Marxist view of suffering is we can identify it with Cain, right? Why does Cain kill Abel? Why does he kill him? Oh, because uh, uh, he was jealous that God accepted. Exactly, yeah, exactly. right? So, so, so he sees, uh, you know, uh, he sees Abel's situation. Mm-hmm. He envies Abel. He right. is angry that Abel is accepted and he is not, mm-hmm. right? And so this bitterness and resentment emerges. And so then he kills Abel, Right. Peterson believes that Marxists incorrectly come to the conclusion that suffering is not part of human existence, but rather suffering is brought upon us by human oppressors. Mm. Okay? And so the way to solve suffering uh, is to remove the source of oppression. And thus you get the idea of revolution and whatever else. And and he believes that this revolution is not necessarily as noble as we often think it is, right? Mm-hmm. Which is why maybe people give Stalin or Mao a pass mm-hmm. or Castro or, mm-hmm. or, or whoever. 
Um, maybe it's not as noble as we think it is, but maybe it's actually often driven by this Cain-like bitterness and resentment. Right. Right. And so for that reason, it's something to be uh, much more wary of than sure. we are. Sure. So how does that tie into the idea of like postmodernism uh, and even the, um, not the predecessors, but the kind of the beginners of postmodernism, like, um, you know, uh, Jacques Foucault and, and yeah. Derrida and yeah. all those guys? Well, so... So the thing is, we have to kind of unpack this a little bit, right? Um, so the first thing to say, as I've said before, is that he notes that Marxism failed, right? Russian Marxism failed. Soviet Union failed. Chinese Marxism failed. The Chi- China still refers to itself as communist, but it is not meaningfully communist, mm-hmm. right? It is basically right. sort of a state-sponsored capitalism, mm-hmm. okay? Um, <clears throat> the places that are still trying to be communist, like Cuba, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of suck, right? Yeah, uh, North right. Korea sucks, right? You know, yeah. uh, so, um, <clears throat> so because of this failure of kind of orthodox standard class-based Marxism, the move is to re-identify it in a different way, right? So you talked about postmodernism. Uh, postmodernism, you know, without getting uh, nerdy in a bad way, which <laughs> yeah. you know everybody would be horribly bored. Uh, and it's funny, a lot of the a lot of the postmodernists can't stand uh, Jordan Peterson because right. they're like, well, he's not talking about postmodernism the right way. You right, know, well, right. that's because that's not what he cares about, right? Yeah. He's not he's not trying to be technically proficient mm-hmm. with you know high postmodernist theory or something like that. Um, but so. So what happens with postmodernism is is that you develop tremendous skepticism of any narrative of truth, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and the reason that you become skeptical of any narrative of truth is that you believe that basically the promotion of truth is simply driven by power, mm, right? You know, or or money or whatever. And so, by that reading, the oppressors are constantly going to be trying to sell you a bill of goods, Mm -hmm. right, that is actually self-serving. You know, there's a wonderful movie that I love, but also Marxists love, called They Live. Mm -hmm. We're going to get nerdy again, okay? See, I can can already tell you, don't even know this movie. The blank look on my face, no recognition whatsoever. Did you ever hear of the wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper? Oh, my goodness, no. No. I didn't. Please don't leave. The 80s is just a blank. I I was born in 92, forgive me. Okay. So Rowdy Roddy Piper was a wrestler who was transitioning to the big screen, okay, okay. Made, a, made a movie. And in this movie, he discovers uh, a box of sunglasses. And uh, he's like an out of, he's, you know, kind of down and out in Reagan's America, construction worker who can't find a job. Okay. He finds these sunglasses, he puts them on, and suddenly he is able to discern the true nature of reality. And what he is able to see is that many people who appear to be human are actually some sort of alien creatures, (laughs) right? Right, kind of Men in Black style, kind of thing. Right, but he so now he can he can see, and they are actually an oppressor class, right? And so he looks at like a a magazine stand, and instead of saying things like um, Cosmo or people, uh, they say things like work consume you know what i mean right yeah. <laughs> stuff I mean, like the that true right nature of these, so there's a yeah. constant you know subconscious right control thought control going yeah. on at all times um 
and so it's a great movie, you know, to watch kind of for that reason. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, fantastic. Um, but the so the postmodernists believe that that life is like that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, uh, whether there is an ultimate truth, I think they would just say we can't know. Right. Okay, um, but to the degree that we tend to believe some sort of received narrative of the truth, you know, they tend to think of it as well. It's a power play from the oppressor class, and so we have to be skeptical of it. Right. 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 Now. The, the result of that is, so you, you may sometimes hear, it's kind of popular, particularly on the left, for people to talk about my truth, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Yeah. My truth, you, say your truth, right? right? You know, that. so truth becomes this, you know, highly subjective thing uh, based on your identity. Uh, but in particular, and this is something that Peterson notes, they tend to promote the understanding of this truth along racial and sexual lines mm-hmm. right uh so that right there is a there is a female truth over against the oppressive male truth or there is a person of color truth over against the white truth mm-hmm. right or whatever like that yeah and um and you know, peterson peterson says well you know uh so you could look at this in a sense to identify with the oppressed but you could also be have your own sort of skepticism toward that and say Maybe this is a power move, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, so like, we talk about white privilege, um, but there are other things we could talk about privilege, right? Uh, what about skinny privilege, right? Do you think that skinny people have an easier time in the world than fat people? Absolutely, right? But do we spend all our time obsessing about skinny privilege? Mm-hmm. Pretty privilege are good-looking people, right? You know, I mean, there are any number of things other than uh, any number of variables right. other than right. uh, race or sex that we could identify uh, as sort of points of privilege or something like that. But yeah. but it seems that they are done in such a way as to cultivate political support, right? So that's kind of what he's saying. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So do you think that there's something there when it comes to the neo-Marxism's relationship to postmodernism that... Uh, that Jordan Peterson is trying to get across that Christians can really benefit from? And then uh, kind of a follow-up question to that. Um, in your particular chapter of the book, is there like one like kernel of truth that you're trying to get across to Christians as well in regards to Jordan Peterson in this topic? Yeah, well, so, so first of all, I'm really amazed by sort of his analysis of the Bible. Mm-hmm. He talks a lot about the Bible. You can, you can find all kinds of stuff from him about that, and he's written some stuff about it. Um, and I find it insightful as a Christian, even though he is not. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of people who want to evangelize him and, you know, right, dream yeah, of yeah. bringing him to the faith, you know, stuff like that. Um, but, like Ben Shapiro, he's kind of there uh, too. Is Sh- Shapiro tried to make a Jew out of him, is that? Well, no, more more people are trying to evangelize oh, Ben oh, Shapiro. Oh, I so, get it, yeah. yeah. And, and, and they sort of seem to run in the same circles. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, so one of the things that I haven't said yet, um, <clears throat> and this, this gets us toward kind of the, the living your life and, and how to live better. Peterson deplores all of this partly because he's worried about the bitterness and the resentment that it engenders, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I identify with that. I mean, as a person who is almost 50 years old, I feel like we're actually going backwards on mm-hmm. race, uh, you know, rather than forwards, which I absolutely right. would not have predicted. Um, in 2008, when Barack Obama was elected, mm-hmm. uh, I thought that we would actually go forward racially after that, and that turned out not to be true. I right. think that we're worse off now than we were. Um, uh, 
But so part of it is the concern over bitterness and resentment. But the other thing is, is that he points out that uh, he kind of talks about the miracle of, so if you come from, say, uh, a Muslim nation, um, uh, you know, somewhere in the, in the Middle East, uh, you very likely would be amazed to come to Canada and find that your bus will arrive within like 10 seconds of when it's supposed to, mm-hmm. right? Right, yeah. Uh, he says that that is... We make a huge mistake if we don't understand how kind of miraculous that is, right? What, yeah, right. what did it take? What does it take to get to the point where you can run something like a modern airport? Mm-hmm. I mean, think about that. Think about the, the hundreds of flights, the logistics, the moving of people on and off, the sorting of the luggage, right? This requires tremendous technical competence, and organization. And these types of things cannot be dictated by politics or ideology, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah, right. You will screw it up, yeah. right? You know, and, and so, so one thing he's afraid of is he says that if we continue to elevate these things like diversity or whatever, mm-hmm. <clears throat> then eventually that will crowd out competence as the priority. Right. Okay. If we crowd out competence as the priority, things will begin to work less and less well. People will become still more dissatisfied with the political and and social systems that we have in place. And then you become in danger of the whole system falling, Mm -hmm. right? So a big part of his message is the need to not go down this sort of bitterness resentment path, elevating identity politics, and instead, let's have some appreciation for the value of competence, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're an individual, the message to you is clear. Focus on developing your competence, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) right. And and honestly, as a Christian, right, that's part of how we love other people, Mm -hmm. right? You know, so when I think about work, uh, I don't think that work is good just in and of itself, right? But one thing that we need to come to grips with is, is that Work is sort of the way that we make ourselves of service to other people, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that we are, to some extent, we are sort of value-giving and receiving creatures. And I mean that kind of in the noblest sense, mm-hmm. right, of, of cooperation. There's a real love in doing a good job, right? Building a really good bookcase that somebody else can use and benefit from. A really good chair, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, whatever. I can remember one time when I had uh, two small children and went to Publix and the guy who bagged my groceries had just done an amazing job, an amazing job. And I got home in the minivan with my two kids I'm trying to manage and I realized I can carry in like twice as many groceries in one go just because of the way the guy packed it, right? Sure. And I felt this gratitude for him mm-hmm. over that. And I, so Peterson would encourage us to kind of to, to, to see that mm-hmm. as how we need to be thinking and, and what we need to be doing instead of obsessing about uh, color and sex and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And all of those things seem like something that a Christian could easily get behind, just like you said. <clears throat> um, but now I'm kind of wanting to, I guess, go, go just a little bit backwards when you're talking about his interpretation of the Bible. Because yeah. he had a, um, a whole lecture series that's available like on podcasts and also on YouTube, I think, yeah. where he's going over, um, I, I think it's just Genesis right now. Maybe he's made his way into Exodus. I'm not really sure. 
Um, but a lot of Christians have actually picked that up and really enjoyed it. Mm. Um, so can you talk a little bit about his method of, of interpret, uh, interpreting the Bible and maybe even, because he's a Jungian philosopher, so That's how right. does that come into play with his reading of Scripture? Yeah, I mean, I would just have to tell you that I'm not an expert in that. Sure. Um, I have, so what I have exposed myself to is is the way that he deals with the Bible with regard to neo-Marxism. Yeah. yeah. But I haven't really dealt with him in terms of his deep analysis of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that the reason Christians will probably like it is because he's taking it seriously. Right. Okay? Right. He's dealing with it as a serious text. Mm-hmm. Whether or not he... So so he's clear so far that he does not embrace it for himself. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, I think that probably what he would say is, is that he lives in a world that is pervasively shaped by the Bible. Right. A world and a society, right? So, mm-hmm. so in, in a sense, if you have grown up in the U.S. or Canada, uh, even in a highly secular way, you've been shaped by the Bible in ways you don't even realize, mm-hmm. right? Significant ways. Uh, even at the point of sort of your basic aspirations, what you want and you think you need and, and things like that, the way you deal with people. And so... I think that what he would say is, is that it's important to encounter the Bible in a serious way to see how that's impacting you. Yeah. Right. What is that? What is that doing to you? So he, you know, as a Jungian, he probably is examining uh, kind of your, you know, what is happening in your subconscious. Yeah. Right. You know, he is, he is of that type who is examining you, you know, mm-hmm. who's going to get you on the couch and try to, you know, have you, have you talk through some of these things and then work it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, that's interesting too, because that's something with the advent of the sort of psychotropic drugs has yeah, right. gone out of style. Yeah. So I yeah. saw a interview with him and I can't, I can't think of his name now, but he is a humanist philosopher and Jordan Peterson was making the argument that the, experiences someone has with these psychotropic drugs could very well be a sort of religious experience. And that's something that I've never really been exposed to before. I I don't believe it, but it was, it was a really interesting thought and something that this humanist guy was totally against because he was, you know, obviously more of the atheist mindset since he's a humanist, but it was a really interesting thing for, for Peterson to say. And I always found it interesting too, that Peterson He's always careful to say that he lives as if God exists, even if he doesn't necessarily believe the type of God exists that Christians hold to. Yeah. So. Well, and he is a he is a person of. I think that to the outside world, he looks like a a hard person, mm-hmm. an unfeeling person. Uh, but what I got from watching so much footage of him and reading so much of his stuff is that this is an extremely sensitive person. I I mean that in a positive way, uh, you know, that that he experiences deep compassion Mm -hmm. for people. Um, And so, yeah, I think think that's part of it, too, is that there is a a tremendous amount of uh, personal vulnerability and compassion Mm -hmm. that's present in him that actually could recommend itself to Christians. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the the quotes I remember from Schaefer— 
Uh, I think he's uh, Francis Schaefer, who mm-hmm. maybe is before your time also. Oh, no, maybe, I love you Francis know, All right, yeah, so you know yeah. Schaefer. I remember watching his uh, his video series where How he should we then like live? a little bit like yeah. uh, Leprechaun. Yeah, yeah exactly. Love it. Love it. Um, well, so, uh, you know, I think that one of the famous Schaefer quotes is something like, uh, there's nothing more ugly than an orthodoxy without compassion, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and so, so Peterson speaks the hard truths, but he's also filled with compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you can see that when he's giving his interviews and he's starting to talk about the, uh, the lives that he's touched through his, his talks and things like that. He, he's often brought to tears from it. That's right. And I think that's something that even like you know, pastors can, can learn from uh, because totally. it's just this, this complete heartbrokenness of this generation that is just lost in this milieu of uh, purposelessness. That's right. And, uh, and that's a huge thing for Christians to actually get on board with and, and kind of champion. Yeah. So. He, he also, um, one thing that I admire about him, so we've talked about how sometimes his emotions are right at the surface. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is that he also can exhibit spectacular self-control. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, <clears throat> one of the first things that I ever saw, cause I, I, I think I was kind of ignoring him. Mm-hmm. I was just kind of like, well, you know, he's like for 22-year-old guys or something. I don't need to worry about it. Sure. And uh, then I saw him interviewed by a female British journalist. Mm-hmm. You maybe have seen this yeah, clip. Kathy Newman, yeah. And she was incredibly hostile, Yeah. incredibly aggressive. And I was amazed at his self-possession, uh, you know, his ability to remain relatively dispassionate, to answer mm-hmm. the questions to correct some of the wrong presumptions of her questions, uh, you know, uh, and to never kind of let her draw him into being out of control or something like that. That really impressed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as an academic, it made me proud because I thought he was actually putting his academic training to use. You know, he was yeah. thinking the way an academic should think, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so often I think that students want us to be advocates. And sometimes I'm explaining to them, I'm an academic, right? And and I consider a big part of my job to try to be dispassionate. To, to, at some point, I want to do a cold analysis of things mm-hmm. and not just be a hot-feeling advocate mm-hmm. because then I'm not necessarily serving you well. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the... the, the one of the last questions I guess I have is is where would you warned Christians about Jordan Peterson? Because we've talked a lot about the good stuff, and we talked a little bit about maybe some things you should watch out for, but is there something that um, that you think that Christians should kind of watch out for as they're diving into Jordan Peterson? It's a really good question. Um, you know, it's so the big thing is is uh, to to make use of the Bible as just sort of a cultural artifact. Yeah. Right? I mean, so for him, there's a sense in which the Bible is is part of sort of an anthropological mm-hmm. sort of a thing, right? So, so whereas for you or me, uh, it is the ultimate reality, right? That, that, that this is kind of our window into what's at the bottom of all things, mm-hmm. right? Not not what's at the bottom of all human things. What's at the bottom of all things? Period. Right? Mm-hmm. True reality. Uh, that that C.S. Lewis, the Great Divorce. Uh, heaven is the most real place in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. So real that you or I could not tolerate it, right? You know, the, the grass would pierce us as though we were ghosts, right? You know, yeah, yeah. 
so for him, the Bible is not that, right? And Christianity is not that. For him, it is a useful lens through which to conduct his analysis. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing to keep in mind. But, but certainly, I know plenty of Christians and, and, and some like really smart Christian women who have almost a, a dreamy attachment to him. You know, he's a right. sort of an intellectual poster boy yeah. who is not hostile to Christianity and mm-hmm. therefore they dream of converting him. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so I guess the last question, would you, is there, if, if Jordan Peterson was right here, is there like a thing that you would want to ask him or something that about his philosophy, about his views or whatever that you would want to wow. actually ask him if he was wow. right here? Right? I'm putting you on the spot. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, so the thing is, is that I agree with him about so many things, uh-huh. right? Uh, I think that with someone like him, I just think about my favorite part of the New Testament. Uh, which is Acts 17. Uh, Paul um, goes to speak at the Areopagus, right, um, to the men of Athens. And he has this very fundamental talk with them about, you know, he sees their statue to an unknown God. That's that's what Jordan Peterson's got, right? Yeah. He's yeah. he's got the statue to the unknown God. Right. I would love to I would love to look at that passage with him mm-hmm. and talk it through. And, uh, and maybe talk about uh, why I believe there really is a resurrected Lord, right? Why, why uh, Jesus Christ is more than a symbolic figure or even a hero of history, mm-hmm. uh, but actually the Lord, right? To right. whom uh, every knee will bow and, and every tongue confess. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I would talk to him about. Yeah. So I uh, I saw this interview one time of this uh, I don't know who it was but it was somebody asking him what he thought about the person of Jesus and and specifically when it comes to like the resurrection yeah and uh, and he said something like you know I'm about three years away from making up my mind about it so it's just it's amazing how all of these apologetic conversations no matter if you're talking with Jordan Peterson or whoever like it always comes back to the person of Christ yeah. and who he actually was within history. Uh, not just mythology. The question, right? The question. People love to obsess about Genesis, the age of the earth. Mm-hmm. What? The question. Who do you say that I am? Yep. That's that's, <laughs> that's the question, right? Yeah. That's where it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, man, thank you so much. So the book coming out, your chapter in it. Can you give us a little bit some detail? Yeah, I'm about hoping. I'm, so it's uh, it's from um, Lexham Press, L E X H A M. Uh, they have published a ton of great books. In fact, I think they're the translators into English of Abraham Kuyper's works. Oh, nice. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so they've got a lot of great stuff coming out. Um, but so I think it's this fall. The last title I saw was something like Jordan Peterson, Myth and Meaning. Oh, nice. Uh, but we'll see if that ends up sure, being the I actual like it, title. I like it, so I hope yeah. it is, yeah. But I'll be sure to circle back and promote it with you, uh, you know, once I, once I have a title. Absolutely. That sounds great. Well, thank you again for coming in. And this was a wonderful conversation. Great. Thank you. All right.